well, we're going to get started with this week's case. You are listening to Killer, and this is the case of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. I know your family, he said, as a second grader, Tally Shapiro, marched down the street on her way to school. She was trekking down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. It was September 25, 1968. A strange man had approached her along her route and uttered those words after asking if she wanted to ride in his car. She was eventually lured to his vehicle when he asked her to come look at a beautiful picture that he had. The eight-year-old didn't remember much after that. Thankfully for Tally, a bystander witnessed the beige-colored car that was suspiciously following her down the road and reported it to the LAPD. The witness reported that Tally had been taken to the DeLongpre Avenue apartment. Now retired LAPD officer Chris Camacho responded to the call. Camacho approached the apartment and began knocking on the door. No one answered. He knew someone was inside, so he began threatening to kick the door in. Finally, someone stuck their head out of a window and said they were taking a shower. Camacho kicked the door in once he realized the person would not open their door. He entered the apartment and found Tally Shapiro almost dead. Tally's body lay on the floor of the apartment kitchen, surrounded by blood. Her white Mary Jane shoes haphazardly spread out on the floor and a metal bar that was used to try to strangle her. Police assumed she was dead and began searching the apartment. They discovered a bunch of photos of young women and pictures, IDs of Rodney Alcala, a student at UCLA. A few minutes later, Camacho walked back into the kitchen and noticed that Tally Shapiro was gasping for air and trying to breathe. She ended up surviving the attack. After the attack, Tally's family moved to Mexico to get away from this violent environment. Rodney James Alcala, born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor, which I probably just butchered, August 23, 1943. Alcala is a Mexican-American born in San Antonio, Texas. In 1951, Alcala's family moved to Mexico, but later, aband- later he abandoned them. Three years later, his mother and three siblings moved to a suburb of Los Angeles, California, when he was around 11 years old. Alcala joined the U.S. Army in 1960 at the age of 17 and served as a clerk. In 1964, he was discharged on medical grounds after going AWOL and hitchhiking back to his mother's house. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder by a military psychologist. As Alcala weaved his way through the court system over the years, other psychiatrists would diagnose Alcala with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and later malignant narcissistic personality disorder with psychopathy and sexual sadism comorbidities. After leaving the Army, Ocala graduated from UCLA School of Fine Arts and studied film under Roman Polanski at New York University. So Rodney Ocala was apparently, you know, a little nuts based on his history in the Army. And a lot of those diagnoses that Craig just read off, those are all... A lot of them come during you know his course as he's going through the court systems and they're analyzing him for trial. Um, so you know not all of that stuff is like known up front when he first attacks Tally Shapiro. Um, you know he's obviously he's a bad dude. I mean right off the rip, just based off the initial crime that we talked about here, and also like if you go through and you know read about him a little bit, like you know he he leaves the army, goes AWOL. Um, he's just not quite there. Uh, the one thing that we didn't mention is that Alcala has uh, a really high IQ, according to, to some sources that I read. And, you know, as you kind of go through the story here and hear all the details, you know, just kind of think about that. Because, you know, a lot of people want to say he's really smart, but I really didn't get that vibe. I think he was more lucky than smart in a lot of instances. Yeah, and it was very interesting, I think, that, you know, he... He joined the army, was discharged, and then he went the the school of fine arts route. It seems like kind of two different worlds to me, in my opinion. Like, I mean, granted, he's probably a younger dude, doesn't know what he wants to do with his life, so joins the military, um, goes AWOL from the military, um, gets discharged, and then he goes the liberal arts route at UCLA. Oh yeah, he might have might have realized. Right then that it wasn't for him, you know, that structure of the, of the military. He's like, I need something a little more yeah, right. and, liberal. And <laughs> from some of the videos I watched and things like that, it sounded like he he was always interested in film and things like that. So 
a little bit intriguing that he yeah. tried to military first, but at that point in time, you know, we're talking C-43, 18, wasn't quite the Vietnam War era yet. So yeah, just an interesting thing that I caught from reading that part. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I think 1964, he got discharged. Uh, oh, he joined in 1960. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you're right in that, that time, you know, post-World War II, military super glamorized. Um, you know, these guys are heroes, you know, you might want to join the army for that reason. And then, you know, you realize later, this is not for me. And, you know, he was only 17 and I'm pretty sure back then, like the recruiting efforts to get these high school graduate types into the army was pretty hot and heavy back then, you know? So it was, it's a Mm well-respected, uh, a job and, you know, he, he was, probably going for it on, on those grounds, or maybe he was just trying to get away for a while. I don't really know, but it is interesting when you see that split happen, like you're talking about. It's like he goes one route, and then it's like, see you later, and goes the complete other route. Um, you know, that's kind of strange. People who knew Alcala said he wouldn't hurt a fly, but he turned out to be quite the opposite person. Police continued to search for Alcala, but they could not track him down. Finally, a break in the case came when two girls went to their local post office and saw Alcala's photo on a Most Wanted poster. They knew him as John Berger, their counselor from an all-girls summer camp in New Hampshire. From the time of the attack on Tally Shapiro in 1968 to his capture in 1971, it had been three years. During those three years, Alcala went to New York and enlisted in film school at NYU. When Alcala was tried for the attempted murder of Tally Shapiro, he was able to plead down to child molestation. He received one year to life, but the parole board let him go after 34 months. Much of this had to do with the fact that Tally's family relocated to Mexico and did not testify during Ocala's trial. The focus back then was on rehabilitation, which leads to Ocala being let go early. Yeah, so, you know, clearly right there, that last line. Alcala gets let go early because the focus is on rehabilitation. And they're not, you know, and back then, I mean, you got to remember... This, this time period, is it's really weird because you have a lot of serial killers and a lot of bad dudes um, in the 70s and 80s, especially. And like things like pedophilia aren't really talked about and people don't even really know what it is. And, you know, if you listen to the case on like Johnny Gosh and, you know, his disappearance and people think he was, you know, abducted and taken into a child sex ring and like people just like can't believe it. it they just can't wrap their heads around it. You know, that's the time we're living in here. And so the focus here isn't necessarily on, hey, uh, you know, this is a bad dude. Keep him locked away forever. It's, hey, we can rehabilitate these people, you know. You know, it's like the um, <laughs> praying the gay away, you know. <laughs> like, we can fix them. Eh. I think we come to figure out later it's pretty hard to do if yeah, you can. There's all. a lot of fixing to do for a guy who is going to to beat and nearly murder a second grader, to you know, within inches of her life. I, I can't imagine there's not a lot i mean with the family running away to mexico you know there's not a lot of you know personal history or whatever you can read from tally shapiro but i think that's a huge error in judgment when you say you can rehabilitate somebody that can do that to somebody that's you know essentially only seven or eight years old that's just insane oh yeah i mean you got this little girl she's just walking to school and the intent on this man right it's a crime of opportunity but i'm willing to bet that he's probably spent a little bit of time watching this girl or several different girls walking to school. You know, it, it's in L.A. It's walking distance to your school. You know, you get their habits down. You get their patterns down. You watch them. And then, you're, and then you know, he comes up with this plan. You know, hey, get in my car. Come look at this picture I've got. <laughs> and, and it works, you know. Um, it, it's hard to imagine that that would work. But it does, you know. And, and thank God for Tally that... Somebody was watching and noticed this dude creeping on this girl because that is what leads police to him and saves her. So, you know, that right there is, I mean, that should have been the nail in the coffin for the dude. We shouldn't be talking about him anymore. Case closed. But we are. So um, let's get into that. After Alcala was released from uh, prison in 1974, he was registered as a sex offender, but no one seemed to notice or care. Within a few weeks of being released, he was arrested for assaulting a 13-year-old girl who accepted the all-too-familiar ride to school. He was paroled again after two years under California's indeterminate sentencing. At that time, the focus was still on rehabilitation, so this leads to Alcala getting out again. 
In September of 1978, Rodney Alcala appeared on ABC's television game show The Dating Game, in which he wins the date with The Bachelorette, Cheryl Bradshaw. Cheryl decides not to pursue the date with Alcala after meeting him backstage as he seemed, quote, creepy to her. Let's take a listen to Ocala's appearance on The Dating Game. And welcome to The Dating Game. And we'll get right underway. It's time to meet our first three eligible bachelors for game number one. And here they are. Good luck, gentlemen. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. And it's time to meet our young lady for game number one, and here she is. Here is a young lady with a wealth of experience. She once earned a living massaging feet, but she quit when her boss suggested that she work her way up. Then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of amour. Welcome, if you will, sensational Cheryl Bradshaw. Hello, Cheryl. Mm, don't sit down yet. Just a minute. Want to make sure everything is straight. You relax? You feel okay? All right. You know there are three bachelors over there. There'll be one, two, and three. Ask them anything you like to find out more about them, except their name, age, occupation, or income, okay? And we're going to start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay. A bachelor number one, I am serving you for dinner. Oh. What are you called and what do you look like? I'm called the banana and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. <laughs> Welcome back to the dating game, and Cheryl, we have reached the moment of truth, as we call it. You heard from the bachelors, you got some great dramatic presentations, some good answers, but now I'm going to ask you a question. Will that date be bachelor number one, bachelor number two, or bachelor number three? Who gets the dates? Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one, bachelor number one, all right. Well, there they go. However, you did leave one remaining, and this is your date, and I want to tell you something about him, Cheryl. He's a skydiver, so he's got a lot of nerve. He's into motorcycling. He's also a fine photographer. Say hello to Rodney Alcala. Rodney, come on, say hello. Congratulations, Rod. You did it with the one answer. So when you listen to the clip of Alcala on the dating game, you'll notice he seems pretty impressionable, likable, charismatic. I mean, it's a silly game, so the things they say are kind of weird and goofy, but, you know, he's quick-witted. He comes up with good things to say. He's funny. He's charming. Obviously, she liked it, so she picks him. Um, you know, so he he's one of those dudes who uh, you, you can hear him talk, and you just, he's hes the snake oil salesman, you know? <laughs> You'd buy anything from him. He could, uh, to quote Tommy Boy, he could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, you know... This is 1978. Let's fast forward to 2018. And some of the the context that you hear in that dating game clip, I don't think sexual harassment in the workplace was a thing 40 years ago. Just by some of the things that game host, the game show host is saying, you know, you don't see game show hosts today walking <laughs> oh, I know. out. And the first thing he does is give this single girl a kiss. And, and, and you can hear it in his voice. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of like crazy, like, damn, I love my job, <laughs> you know. But then he's starting to make comments about her being a masseuse and, and getting fired because she was massaging her boss's feet and got fired because she wouldn't move up or something to that effect. I'm like, holy, holy shit. If you said something like that today, oh yeah, you'd be out on the street with no job in about 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. You'd be yep. hashtag me too in about a heartbeat. Yeah, and it, I noticed that too. You know, when you're listening to the clip, this dude just sounds like a total perv and complete creep, and then you watch it at the same time, and, and the guy just like, he's like way too excited to be able to like kiss this girl's cheek and just, you know, have his hands all over. And even some of the things he says about the guys when they, you know, when he's talking about um, Alcala, he says, uh, I think something to the effect of, you know, he he's a photographer and he was developed by the yeah. age of 12 or something like that. 
like that back in his dark room <laughs> i don't know something strange like that and it's uh, these weird perverted comments i mean i know that's kind of the the whole shtick of the show but it, it is weird taking it through the lens of 2018 10 years ago if i would have mm-hmm. seen that clip i probably would have thought nothing about it but now with all of the stuff that's been going on and all the things that are coming out it's really you know weird yeah it's definitely weird <laughs> to say the least and- probably my favorite part of the clip too was when they when they pan into Alcala in the clip and he introduces himself you know they come in from that dark you know fade in to the focus of the camera or whatever dude he looks like uh Gene Simmons without the kiss makeup the hair is hair is just crazy again this is 78 <laughs> and I mean yeah. at that time I'll give away my true age here, but at that time I'm four years old, so I'm sure I have some heinous haircut and clothes just like this dude in a clip. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rough. <laughs> he does. He has this like he does have like Gene Simmons like mop hair. Like Gene Simmons has like the weirdest long hair I've ever seen on a person. It's like it's like looks like dog hair to me. Like it's weird. Yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like poodle hair and just real thick. It's it is weird. Yeah, I mean he could in that clip. He he's not necessarily Gene Simmons' twin brother, but he's got that look going on. Oh, they could be cousins. I mean, easily. Yeah. So I it was strange. Uh, it's just it's. That's, this is where, obviously, he gets his moniker of the dating game killer because, um, you know, once they find out more about this guy, you know, everyone goes back to the fact that he was on the dating game, which is, uh, you know, a fascinating aspect of this case. On June 20th, 1979, a 12-year-old girl named Robin Samso disappeared. On that day, Robin was planning her first day of work at a ballet studio answering phones. Before she headed there, she went to her friend Bridget's house to play. The two girls went down to the beach from Bridget's house to have a cartwheel competition. On their way, they were stopped by Rodney Alcala. He approached the two young girls and asked if he could take their picture. Bridget says that he honed in on them like a shark looking for a seal in the water. Bridget's neighbor happened to be near the area and interjected, asking if the girls were all right. At this point, Alcala tries to obscure his face and takes off walking away quickly. Bridget and Robin head back to Bridget's apartment, a little bit shaken. Robin told Bridget she better get going and picked up her belongings. Bridget had a bike at her house and gave it to Robin to take with her, and that was the last time anyone saw her. Robin's ballet teacher called her family later that night to let them know that she didn't make it to the studio that evening. Her family searched for hours and days, riding their bikes up and down the street trying to retrace her steps. Police questioned Bridget extensively, and the only thing she could tell them was about the strange man trying to take their picture. On July 2nd, 12 days after Robin disappeared, detectives told her family Robin was dead. Robin's mother wanted to go see her, but the police said we can't let you do that. Her mother's response was, why not? Police said that her body was in such bad shape it took three days to identify her. Her remains were discovered by a fire crew doing routine maintenance in a remote location more than 40 miles from where she was last seen. Due to animals scavenging, all that was left of her body was bones. Bridget was able to provide a description that led to a composite sketch that resembled Alcala. Alcala's parole officer saw the composite sketch and called the police and suggested it was him. Police began investigating him again, and he could not provide an alibi for June 29th. Rodney Alcala was arrested on July 24th for the murder and kidnapping of Robin Samso. Here we are again. This is the third time he's been arrested for doing stuff with little girls. So if you remember Tally Shapiro, and there was another time shortly after he got out uh, with another girl, and I don't believe they ever name her. I think in the research, her name's like Julie J or something that they name her. And uh, then you have her, him with Robin Samso. And, you know, this guy is just keeps getting out of prison and keeps getting these breaks for some reason. Like, you have this whole trail of evidence of this guy in, in, in the wake that he's left behind, yet he still continues to get out of jail. Yeah, it's to me that it's super impressive that the other girl was able to give him a composite sketch that they could hone in on him that quickly. I mean, it's not like a today's, you know, time where we have cell phone clips and surveillance footage of every, like, step you take out in public. I, I, th- I thought that was cool that she could give a, a good enough sketch or a good enough description to where they could sketch him out, and they pretty much honed in on him right away. So I don't know if he was just, like, known as the neighborhood creeper out walking around, just, like, checking out little kids <laughs> all day or what. Again, I mean, this is the third time that he's going to get arrested, and... He keeps getting back out, which is, you know, 
obviously dangerous because he's uh, a violent sex offender and he seems to have this uh, fascination with young girls. So they make this composite sketch and it looks just like him. I mean, I looked at the composite and it was like spot on. You would, if you knew him and saw this picture, you go, yep, that's that dude. There's no doubt. And, you know, they say he's so smart, but the dude gets caught instantly every time. He just keeps getting lucky and getting off. Like the leniency of California, that's how he gets off in the first place, which it's like, okay. And he gets off again because they're pretty lenient. And so clearly you're not rehabilitating him. He's soliciting another young kid, right? And then ultimately they find yeah, him dead. And, I, and ironically, I hate to keep doing this, but fast forward to 2018, I think, I don't know California's judicial system inside and out, but I think now they're one of the states that has a three-strike rule for, what is it, drug possession. So essentially if you get busted like three times, you could do life in prison. But this guy is already on his third strike, nearly killed a, a girl the first time, had had the run in with the second girl mm-hmm. and now he's finally he's finally murdered someone you know i think she's 12 years old and again as we go through this it, it's like this guy is a cat he has nine lives for the prison system he keeps getting out keeps getting these passes and it's just just blows me away yeah absolutely it's it's fantastic to see this how this you know shakes out every time it's like unbelievable how how the hell do you get out this many times in a row <laughs> i mean it's just you know it, it's astounding to me you know you, you watch these guys commit these crimes over and over and over again and they're violent crimes against young kids like who wants their young kid anywhere near this dude if you're the judge how are you letting this guy out of there knowing that this is what happens if i had an eight-year-old kid that's the first thing i'm thinking would I want this dude in a room with my eight-year-old by himself? Yeah, at the very yeah. Fuck no, I no, would not. No, exactly. <laughs> no way. And you would think at the very least that they would have, you know, considered putting him in some kind of a psychiatric unit of the prison at some point because the dude is obviously crazy as hell. And you, you know, he doesn't. He needs to be locked away from the general public as a whole because he, he's a danger, especially to little kids and. Yeah, it's it's definitely a dude that should not have been walking the streets. Absolutely. When police questioned Alcala, he denied having been to Huntington Beach, where Robin disappeared. He also denied taking photos of people and said that he could not recall doing so. Police received a break when Alcala's sister went to visit him in jail. During their conversation, he told his sister that he had a storage locker in Seattle. Police don't know about it so she needed to go clear it out. Police had found a receipt for the locker while searching his home at the time of his arrest. Police go visit the locker and find dozens and dozens of photos featuring mostly younger women. The locker was purchased nine days after the discovery of Robin. No photos of Robin or Bridget were recovered from the locker. Police found a photo of a girl. They were fairly sure that they had seen in the Huntington Beach area quite regularly. So they posted the picture of her in the newspaper looking for someone to identify her. The purpose was to place Alcala in Huntington Beach and prove that he was lying about visiting there. At this point, police are still trying to pin Alcala to the area at the time. They begin to theorize that Alcala was out hunting for a victim that day. They suggest that he was able to catch up to Robin as she rode her bike and convinced her to get get a ride in the car to the ballet studio. Robin may have agreed to join him because she was already running late. The police were never able to find the bicycle that Robin was riding. However, they were able to uncover something else quite interesting. Inside the storage locker, police found a small silk bag with various earrings in it. They showed the contents to Robin's mother, and she was positive one pair were hers, and that Robin would often borrow them. In the days following the release of the composite sketch, Alcala got a haircut and changed from long curly hair to shorter straight hair, so a little less Gene Simmons. He also changed the carpet in his car. He told his girlfriend at the time that it was to remove the smell of spilt gasoline. In February of 1980, Alcala went on trial. The jury convicted Alcala and sentenced him to death. In 1984, his conviction was overturned and it was stated he received an unfair trial. The California Supreme Court ruled that jurors had been improperly made aware of his prior sex crime. In 1986, Alcala was tried and convicted a second time and again, the verdict was overturned. This is the luckiest person in the entire world apparently you can go around and just you know kill people and molest young kids and hey we'll just overturn your case no big deal yeah it, it's, it, it's astonishing to me that <laughs> you know he's taken to trial and the case gets overturned twice and then we're talking about 1986 at this point this is what <laughs> eight years removed of the murder of robin samso 
and this dude is still still yeah. getting off the hook. I mean, well, you're almost twenty years after the first yeah, time. It's eighteen years after Tally Shapiro. You alluded to the fact earlier that you know, in some cases or some instances, it was reported that he had a very high IQ. But I honestly think this guy is as dumb as shit because you get all these chances, you get all these trials overturned. Why in the hell didn't he just turn tail and run? Why didn't he go to Canada for Christ's sakes and just? get the hell out of there because i mean he's given so many chances to just basically turn tail and run oh yeah and that's like early on when after like the tally shapiro stuff like he does go to new york and ends up in like the new england area for a little bit and like changes his name and does all that stuff but then he gets caught again because he looks like he has a very distinct look and so when someone nails that on that composite sketch there's like no getting around it this guy just i mean he looks like a creep first of all but he just you know, he's got this really, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. He, like you said, he has like that almost Gene Simmons look, but his face is a lot thinner and more gaunt. And like in certain pictures that they show of him where he's not smiling or anything, he just like looks super yeah. duper. We'll have creepy. to grab a screen grab of a picture of this guy and make sure we put it in our chapters when we, when we put together the final audio, because everybody oh, needs to take a look at this dude. Yeah. It will be definitely in your podcast player that supports chapters. If you take a look during the show. We'll be flashing some pictures around. In 2003, the efforts began to reconstruct a case against Rodney Alcala. A huge break in this case comes to us via DNA technology. Alcala was linked to three other unsolved murders, Jill Barkham, Georgia Wickstead, and Charlotte Lamb. More evidence linked him to Jill Peronto, which occurred just days before Robin Samso. All of these murders carried the same MO. The women were left posed, their heads showed they were beaten, and they were all strangled by ligatures. Most of these murders were done in different jurisdictions. Alcala was an intelligent man in some regard. He figured that law enforcement would not share information, so it would be less likely if he were caught that they would get him for all of these horrible crimes, maybe only a small handful. A decision was made to prosecute Alcala with all of the Los Angeles murders together in order to show the jury just how heinous this man was. Almost 31 years after Robin Samso's murder, Rodney Alcala was back on trial. This time, Alcala chose to represent himself. He also chose to take the stand, which allowed the doors to be opened to prosecutors to attack Alcala to use his book he wrote, You the Jury, in 1994 against him. Alcala was now married to the facts he laid out in this book. Alcala disputed claims that the earrings found in the storage locker belonged to Robin Samso, however. Another pair showed a DNA match to Charlotte Lamb. In his book, he claimed the earrings were a gift from his sister, but now it was proven that was a lie. Alcala called Robin's mother, Marianne, to the stand during the trial. He tried to assault her character by asking her if she brought a gun to court during the first trial. During an interview for 48 hours, she stated that she did bring a gun to the first trial and was planning to shoot Alcala right between the eyes. When asked what stopped her, she said Robin's hand on her wrist. She recalls smelling the shampoo that Robin would use, and her hand froze, and she couldn't pull her hand from the purse. The scientific evidence that the prosecutors put on display for the other women that were murdered overwhelmed Alcala. He ignored them throughout the trial as if they never happened. The prosecution pushed very hard to get the court to convict him of Robin Samso's murder. In a surprising twist of events, the prosecution called to the stand Tally Shapiro, Alcala's first known victim. If you remember, she did not testify during her trial. After the testimony, for the third time, a jury convicted him of murdering Robin Samso. He was also charged with murdering Jill Pronto, Charlotte Lamb, Georgia Wickstead, and Jill Barcombe. After the sentencing of Alcala, the police released photos of more than 100 young women and even some children from his storage locker in Seattle. Police at this point are hoping the family and or the subjects themselves will help identify the people in the photographs to determine if, they were, if there were any more victims. In 2013, a family member recognized a photo of Christine Thornton, whose body was found in Wyoming in 1982. Christine went missing in 1977. In 1982, her body was discovered in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, but not identified until 2015 using DNA. Alcala admitted to taking photos of the woman, but not to killing her. She was six months pregnant at the time of her death. Alcala was deemed too ill to stand trial in Wyoming and remains in California State Prison awaiting his death sentence. A few other items I wanted to touch on uh, during this case. Because you have kind of these few big blocks of the case with Tally Shapiro and then, you know, Robin Samso. And then there's obviously these these last people who come into play here during the last Robin Samso trial. Um, in 2010, Seattle police named Alcala as a person of interest in the murders of Antoinette Whitaker, murdered in 1977. 
and Joyce Gaunt murdered in 1978. Alcala rented a storage unit in 1979 in that area, and items belonging to these two women were found there. In 2011, San Francisco police feel they have enough evidence to link Alcala to the murder of Pamela Jean Lamson. No charges were filed due to the lack of DNA evidence. In 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced Alcala to an additional 25 years to life for the murders of Cornelia Crilly, 1971, and Ellen Hover, 1977. So just to recap there quickly, you know, those last two happened in the, you know, during the 70s. Most of these happened in the 70s, and they're just now starting to discover these links to Alcala. So he was a very busy man during this time. Yeah, and just to recap the complete list of his victims, we'll start at the top, Tally Shapiro, survived the attack. She was uh, you know, the first victim when he was originally arrested. Uh, Cornelia Crilly, 1971. Ellen Hover, 1977. Antoinette Whitaker in 1977, where he was just a suspect in the case. Jill Barcombe, 1977. Georgia Wickstead, 1977. Pamela Jean Lamson, 1977, which he was accused of that murder. Christine Ruth Thornton, 1977. Um, he would later be charged in that case in 2016. Joyce Gaunt, 1978, where he was, a, again, a suspect in that case. Charlotte Lamb, 1978. Jill Parento, 1979. And then Robin Samso. So that, that list is crazy, and it, it's obvious rehabilitation did not work for this dude. That's just a crazy, crazy list of girls. No, and the th- the scary part about this whole list is you know it's not the complete list. They're finding people and connecting him as early, you know, like recently, 2016, I think. That might have been the most recent one that I, I found during research. But they had that locker, and it has pictures of hundreds of girls. And there are, I think, even some young boys in there. And they the police released... Um, I want to say it was like a, a few hundred photos or a hundred photos. I think that you, you know, you stated that earlier, uh, to the public for them to try to identify people in these photos because they're trying to link them to Alcala and figure out who they are, where they are, and maybe that they're an unsolved murder case somewhere. And they just don't know who the person is. And there were also like an additional, like almost a thousand photos that were too graphic for police to release. And, you can still go out there today and go find these photos and look at them. So if you are interested, I'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes so that you can go check that out. But basically, you know, it's just a huge spread of photos of a bunch of young women and people are just trying to figure out, you know, who they are and, you know, what their link is with Alcala. So clearly, I mean, there's even a huge gap in that list from 19... So you have Tally Shapiro happened in 1968, and then you had Cornelia Crilly in 1971. He was in prison um, during some of that stretch, but then again, he doesn't strike till 1977. So, you know, I believe he gets out of prison in 74. So there's a three-year gap there, which you know he was up to no good. They just yeah. didn't know about it. And they they found they said they found hundreds and hundreds of photos in that storage locker that he had in Seattle. I don't know. It's crazy to think about how far this actually could have stretched or you know how many of those victims, you know, you know kind of fell off the radar or went unidentified. Yeah, I mean there's probably a bunch of missing persons or whatever where they find they find the body but they're just a Jane Doe. You know, they don't know who she is. Don't know where she went. Don't know how long she's been there, you know, and just trying to roughly piece some of the stuff together. And this dude was all over the country. So who knows who all he left in his wake? Like Cornelia Crilly, I believe, happened in New York. And then you've got a lot of these women in California. Mm-hmm. And I think there was even one in Wyoming. And then, you know, so he's yeah. he's all yeah, over he, the place. He could have abducted and killed pe- people from coast to coast. I don't know. We didn't read into the research enough to see how he traveled to New York City, but my assumption is he had a cross-country road trip. So, I mean, there were probably so many crimes of opportunity along his way, you know, during that trip. It'd be interesting to piece the timeline together to see if that's what happened when he went to New York where, you know, hey, I'm going to stop off in Wyoming. (laughs) And that happened to that other girl. It's just, it's, (laughs) you know, it's really sad when it comes right down to it that, he kept getting all these chances and then, you know, the victims paid the ultimate price, but you know, the judicial system did not do its job in this case whatsoever. No, not at all. And, you know, he, um, you know, he leaves California, you know, right after he's released from prison the first time 
uh, well, he's he's actually a fugitive when he goes to New York and New Hampshire, and he's going under that alias of John Berger. You know, so he right away, you know, he left from California, and he probably drove from California to New York slash New Hampshire area, New England. So who knows? Like you're saying, who knows who's in his wake from just from California to New York? I mean, you cross the entire country, coast to coast. <laughs> what the hell? Um, I guarantee you there's, just based off this list, I mean, this is a, he's been caught several times and he doesn't stop. So to think that there's not more victims attributed to him is probably a complete understatement. No, because I'm sure there were a lot of these cases where they had these unidentified remains and they weren't able to link DNA. You know, the one case wasn't linked to DNA until, was it 2010? You know, it's irrelevant, but there are probably just so many cold cases with this guy. I, I can't even imagine. It was 2003. Yeah, they started linking four cases to him in 2003. Um, there were more after that, but 2003 was when they first started linking him to the additional cases. The fact that California let this guy go so many times, and look at all the bodies that were left in his wake, you know? They didn't know that at the time. They only knew of two offenses. But, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens with these kinds of offenders. Like, this is why you don't take that risk and let these people out into the public so soon. Because they end up doing things like this. It's disgusting. I mean, how many families were affected by this guy going and killing or abducting and, you know, disposing of women? Like, Like I said, there's so many more women in his wake that we don't even know about that are who knows where. And police are trying to figure out who these people yeah. are. Yeah, just from the list we recapped, there were 12. I mean, uh, Tally Shapiro survived, but, you know, 12 on our list that we know of. Then mm-hmm. a couple where Barely. he was, you know, just a suspect, but most likely the yeah. offender. And and that's the thing. Like, yeah. And, you know, this dude is obviously a narcissist. You know, he's diagnosed as such by several psychologists. He thinks he's smarter than everyone. He represents himself at trial. And, you know, the prosecution is going through and just, you know, nailing him on stuff. And he has nothing to say. You know, these four additional women that get brought up to him linked by DNA, he ignores it during the case and acts like it just didn't didn't even happen. Just just talks about Robin Sam. So that's all he talks about because that's all he was prepared for. You know, he sat in his jail cell and just read through all the police reports. He was able to retain that information. He was able to present it in a way that was somewhat clear. But he's also a maniac. And at the end of their trial... Like, in one of his closing arguments, he plays some sort of crazy song. We might have to grab that clip and put it in here. Because he plays this crazy song about killing and murder. And right there, the jury is just like, this guy is an absolute lunatic. The song is called Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie. It goes on for 18 minutes. I'm going to play a portion of it for you now. I went down to get my physical examination one day, and I walked in and sat down... Got good and drunk the night before, so I looked and felt my best when I went in that morning. Cause I wanted to look like the all-American kid from New York City. Man, I wanted, I wanted to feel like the, I wanted to be the all-American kid from New York. And I walked in, sat down, I was hung down, brung down, hung up, and all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly things. And I walked in, I sat down, they gave me a piece of paper, said, kid, see the psychiatrist, room 604. And I went up there, I said, shrink, I want to kill, I mean, I want, I want to kill, kill, I want, I want to see, I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth, eat dead, burnt bodies, I mean, kill, 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 and I started jumping up and down, yelling, kill, kill, and it started jumping up and down with me, and we was both jumping up and down, yelling, kill, kill. So as you can hear, that's a live recording of that song, and it's just a little bit silly and strange, and it's performed in front of an audience, and obviously it's it's comedic, but I just wanted to play that for you guys just so you could get a sense of the kind of things that he was presenting during his trial. And I'm putting this in uh, post-recording, without craig to give his feedback on it but i just wanted to throw that in there and this is kind of in the middle of a little bit of a segment and uh we're going to join back to that the rest of the conversation now and you have to actually hear the song because it's 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 like not really i would say 
like a song you know it's just like this crazy mishmash of some guy screaming about killing people and there's might be some guitar in the background i mean it's bizarre you know he's just he's a lunatic and he's the sad and unfortunate thing in this case is that he's still alive today he's still sitting in prison getting his you know three meals a day and you know his outdoor time or whatever while all these people were killed yeah and one thing that we didn't touch on well we we touched on it early in the case when we were discussing you know his educational background and things but he studied under roman polanski and i don't want to take this discussion down a completely different tangent but that guy you know as we all know has a serious checkered past i mean not to mention the fact that a he was married to sharon tate which was killed by charlie manson in those murders right but then you fast forward and then yep. he's, he's right in the center of this huge sex abuse case. So and I'm not going to draw any correlation there, but I mean, maybe there is something there. You know, what if this Polanski <laughs> dude planted some of this sick behavior in him as a student when he was, you know, studying under him? Yeah. I mean, who knows what their interactions were? It is mentioned as kind of like a line item in research, but I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what their relationship was like, but it is just curious to connect the two together and, and note that, you know, these two weirdo sexual sadists are, you know, connected <laughs> at some point right. in history. And which is not to strange. mention Polanski is tied, like I said, to the, you know, Sharon Tate's murder and the Manson family. So right there, you're looking at one of the most notorious cases, you know, of a killer in history. It, it, this is crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing that gets me with the Charlie Manson stuff, though, is that, like, he didn't actually kill anyone, right? Like, he just, like, told people to go kill people, and, you know, obviously, that's not good. Um, That dude is a lunatic and deserves to rot in prison, you know, like he did. Um, But, you know, it's just, it's always funny how he gets attributed to this stuff, but it's like, someone actually, someone else actually had to go kill somebody. He never killed anyone. You know, he was just the nutcase behind it all. But yeah, it it is strange, you know, that connection that you bring up and all that stuff. I don't know. The, the thing that struck me about this dude, about Alcala, was that he was just, he would use this photography ruse, and man, did it seem to work. And, and, it, and, and you connect that, I mean, this was the 70s, right? Look at today, and look at how people are constantly obsessed with taking selfies and you know, photographs of themselves and video of themselves. Back then, you didn't have cell phones. You didn't have instant access to photography like you do, you know, in your pocket. And some guy comes up and wants to take your picture. Like, these girls are like, yeah, take my picture. Like, think about how it is today. And we're all, we all make fun of it, you know. Oh, yeah, you got these super girls taking her selfie again. She got to take 20 of these pictures. You know, you see them in the car taking Snapchats of themselves, you know, until they get the right one at the stoplight, you know, because they just can't wait. So how easy of a ruse right. was this back then? I don't know. With today, people are obsessed with taking selfies and doing this and that. But I don't know. Some random dude that looks like this guy walks up to you on the street with his cell phone and says, Hey, can I take your picture? Uh, I think that's going to set some alarms off. <laughs> well, right, right. The, the the times are different in that regard. But what I'm saying is, you know, the culture that we've noticed where when people have the camera in their pocket, that they would just want to take pictures of themselves. This guy was walking around saying, hey, I want to take your picture. And that sparked that thing that the people have now. I mean, obviously, the creepy, like, predator part of it has now been ingrained in our culture where it's like, okay, if someone comes up to you and wants to take your picture, they're a creep. But back then... He would do it under the ruse of like, I'm in a mag, I, I'm an editor of a magazine, and I want to take your picture for this magazine. And the girls are like, yeah. yeah, let's take take my picture, woohoo! You know that kind of thing. And, and and you look at girls today, and they you know they have their phones out taking pictures of themselves, and, and guys too, but it's mostly women that get you know <laughs> this thrown on them. Um, you know that's that's the kind of mentality that you have to sort of apply to back then when these girls are getting approached. They don't really again back to the whole thing I said earlier. You know. Creeps and pedophiles were not necessarily as widely known. I mean, you knew about it, but it wasn't like a thing. Like when I'm in school, you know, you got stranger danger, right? And and that's getting just like blasted into your head all the time. Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it was to some extent then, but it was still a different time. You know, you slept with your house completely unlocked. Your car was unlocked. You know, you didn't care about these things. And then you've got this guy who's coming in with these bad intentions and he's like, you know, 
snake oil salesman, right? And he's he's throwing this thing in front of you. Oh, I'm a photographer for a magazine. Here you go. And the girls are like, oh, yeah, I'd like to be in a magazine. That would be cool, you know? And then he lets them just go take pictures of them. Yeah. I don't know. It's baffling to me. Again, how could somebody, how could this guy be free to walk the streets for as long as he did and do as much damage as he did to, to all these girls and all these families? Yeah, that's, yeah, you're and 100% right. Some of the audio that we looked at and so, some of the different um, clips, I think, I think you found one of the best ones with Robin Samso's mom where she came in on the end of that one interview. And, uh, yeah. She didn't hold back. Oh, um, so speaking of that, um, I'll play that clip for you now, and then um, you know we'll talk about that in here in just a second. So take a listen. This is Robin Samso's mother talking about um, Rodney Alcala and you know kind of how she feels about him now. And obviously, remember, I mean, she took a gun to the very first trial, and she wanted to shoot this dude in the head, and she didn't. So just take a listen. I don't want him to go to no other states and, and be held accountable for no, nothing else because he can only be killed once. I want him to die here. I want to live one day longer than him. I want to live one day without feeling or hearing the name Rodney Alcala in my mind. I could die a happy woman. I mean, that's just powerful. You know, that's Robin Samso's mother. <laughs> Basically, she's just saying, you know, she wants him dead. Mm-hmm. And she wants to see it happen. And, you know, that's, I mean, and that's all these years later, right? I mean, that I think that was from, I mean, that was pretty recent. That was after he was convicted again. You know, I think that video might have happened in 2013 or something um, that we pulled that audio from. You know, she just wants to see that guy die. That's all she wants. What's your thoughts on if she would have actually went through with killing this dude in court? If she would have pulled the gun out and killed him, you know, how many lives would she have saved by doing that? I kind of feel like I would have done yeah. the same thing she Especially did. If... You know, I, I I try and think about that, you know, like, what would you do if it was your kid and you knew that this guy did it? Like, you knew. Well, there was no surprise. It wasn't a secret. Like, it, it happened. You knew it happened. And and you knew it was this creep. And and. I, I I think I would take jail time. I think I'd kill him yeah. and, and go to jail for it. Yeah. I really the, do. The crazy thing is it's 2018 and you're not going to carry a gun into court. Of course, unless you 3D print it and then it's untraceable by a metal detector, right? But there's no <laughs> way in hell you're going to get a gun into a court. But had the ironic thing is had she went through with it and killed this dude in court, obviously the court system and the judge doesn't know the extent of what he did at that point in time, you know, the, the, the full list of victims. Right. She would have saved so many lives by doing that right up front. Um, but yet her killing him in public like that, she most likely would have went to prison for life. And then, you know, the tables are turned on her at that point. And then, you know, everybody's there and witnesses it. she kills this dude, even though in my opinion, he completely and totally deserved it she would have went to prison for the rest of her life. But, you know, she would have. But uh, remember, Robin Samso comes at the end of this list. So she wouldn't have saved anybody. That's true. I mean, she would have just given him some justice. But, uh, you know, he wouldn't be leeching off the system today. However, nobody would have been saved from that. I still would be down. That would have been vindication at that point. And I would have been totally with it, too. It it sounds like her life is completely and totally ruined. You know, she the only thing she wanted in life was to live one day longer than this dude. So maybe going to prison for killing this dude would have been, you know, all that she needed to get, you know, her justice in her mind or her peace of mind. It wouldn't have mattered at that point. Yeah. She just wants to see him go down before she does. And I don't blame her. You know, if that happened, I oftentimes think about stuff like this. When we research these cases, you get into this dark place. And I sometimes think about, you know, how would my life be, not just me, but like my wife and stuff, like how would that be, you know, going forward? Like that would just, I feel like that would just ruin us. Like our marriage would probably be ruined because we both would be so broken, you know? And I don't, I don't know what would happen. You know, and you got to think about that. Like this stuff happens to people and then it just ruins them. So you didn't just kill that person. 
you ruined their family, you know? And you'll see in a lot of cases, you know, stuff like this happens, and then the couple divorce because they just can't deal with each other anymore because they're so grief-stricken, or one of the two is way more than the other one and can't get past it while the other person is just trying to move on but keeps getting drugged down by this, you know, from their partner. And, you know, it's really sad. And I, I don't know what happened to Robin Samso's mom and, and, you know, their family specifically, but she sounds like she's still broken, you know? Like, she never yeah, got over Yeah, she it. said she never wanted to hear his name mentioned again, ever. So it, it, it completely, and yeah. that, you know, from our observation, it completely and totally ruined her life. And I'm sure it ruined the lives of other people in her family, just like you said. That, that trickle-down effect, it, it's, you know, it, it's hard to say how far that reached. Yep, well, that will conclude today's episode. We'll put the case file down for Rodney Alcala, and we will be putting out another episode next Monday. So, if you enjoy the show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, I want to say thanks to those of you guys who keep listening. Uh, We're happy to do this show. Craig and I bust our ass trying to put out a show every week, Um, so it can be tough at times. And so far, we've hit every Monday we've been trying to, so let's keep it going. Um, again, I wanted to plug our uh, special show that we're working on. It's going to be a, a bonus episode, a Halloween show, and uh, you know that'll be out sometime in October. I'm, I'm tentatively thinking the week before Halloween. Um, I think, or the the 29th, I think, is actually the first Monday before Halloween, or last Monday before Halloween, I should say. So that's what we're going for, trying to hit October 29th with a new bonus episode. Uh, which will be pretty awesome. If you'd like to support us, head out to our website, www.killerpod.net, and you can click the support button at the top of the page. Also, in your podcast player, there is a link in the show notes. If you would be so kind, you could engage us on social media. We are on Twitter, at killer underscore podcast, because some jerk took their full string. On Instagram, at killer podcast. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash killerpodcast, or you could email us, killerpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for everyone who keeps listening. We love doing the show. We hope you like it. If you have any feedback for us, have any case suggestions, if you just want to say hello, please feel free, hit us up. Uh, probably most active on Instagram because it's easy to publish to all the other platforms from Instagram. And quite honestly, it's a lot nicer than Twitter is. Craig, no. any parting words? Really enjoyed the show this week. Looking forward to that Halloween episode just coming up here in a few weeks. So appreciate everybody uh, tuning in, listening to the show, and keep us sing going. All right. That's it for us. Stay safe.